hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Welcome to the Pool Player Podcast brought to you by Pool Scene 365. I'm your host, Joey Ryan. If you're enjoying this content, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell so you can be updated with each new episode. Today, we have a great episode for you. Uh, We have a really a champion from the era of champions. He was an accomplished tournament player and a seasoned road hustler. Okay, some of his accomplishments include... ESPN World Open Champion, 1996 Pool and Billiard Magazine Player of the Year, Billiards Digest Top Money Player of the Century, along with Efren Reyes and Earl Strickland. He spent seven years in the world top 10 rankings. He's a former national high school champion and World Series of Tavern Pool Champion at just the age of 21. He's also produced and directed six instructional DVDs, a documentary, numerous YouTube videos, and currently you can catch him on Facebook telling stories of his travels on the road and hustling. Uh, Without further ado, I would like to introduce CJ Wiley. How's it going, CJ? Good, Joey. How are you doing today? Oh, man, I'm great. I'm just so excited to learn more about you. So can you get started just telling us, like, how'd you get started in pool? Well, I come from a small town in northern Missouri, 629 people, and I was in uh, first grade, and and some of the kids were talking about playing pool at the little pool room downtown, and so I agreed to go down with them, and uh, I remember going into this place, and, you know, the the smell of smoke and mixed with, they had like spittoons, and the old men were playing cards in the back, and we had three nine-foot pool tables. First one was red, the next one was uh, green, and the next one was blue, you know, so, uh, but they were, I think, Brunswick uh, anniversaries or or, uh, centennials, they had the chrome on them, but Mm -hmm. we had to, uh, you know, a lot of players you'll see has that stick right on their chin when they're playing, and uh, not in all cases, but a lot of times it's because they started like I did at age seven. So they can't hardly reach the table. And then when they grow up, they just keep that chin placement. We stood on Pepsi crates. The uh, owner of the pool room had these big wooden Pepsi bottle crates (laughs) and we would move them around and stand on these crates. So I never did uh, develop that habit. Uh, I say that because a lot of people think that that you're supposed to do that. But uh, a lot of it's because uh, a lot of the champions started when they were really young. So, so if you, if you don't have your, your, cue on your chin don't don't feel like that's a disadvantage as a matter of fact uh i think in a lot of cases it might be a little bit better but uh that's the first time i ever played and i beat the guy the kid uh that i was with like three games in a row which he wasn't delighted about but i just had a knack for the game and by the time i was nine i'd ran my first rack by the time i was 11 i ran two racks in a row playing eight ball and we played rotation and eight ball. And then when I was 12, it was the first time I broke and ran all 15 balls in rotation, just to give you an idea. And I won my first regional tournament at 12 and then uh, started going on the road when I was 15. Going, I borrowed a friend's car when I was not quite old enough to drive. His only words to me were, you wreck, you pay. <laughs> <laughs> and a, 
a thriving snow cone business at the time. So he knew I had the money to pay for the car, but he would loan it to me and I'd drive to Columbia, Missouri, which was about 80 more miles uh, from, from where he was. And I'd play all weekend and then drive back. And at the age of 15, I remember being in a snowstorm. I mean, it, you know, when it's snowing so hard, you can't hardly see. Yeah. I'm 15 years old. I'm driving back. And I remember I, I finally get back to where, you know, he's at. And his house is behind this little shopping center. And I went into the shopping center. I mean, it's just white everywhere. And I was doing donuts. <laughs> the, there was no friction, you know what I mean? But yeah. I just did some donuts. And I mean, it was a wow, you know, and then I uh, went on to his house. And, and uh, so so I, I had a lot of adventure in me from a young age. I think it's kind of in my blood to be on the road and travel. And uh, I picked the perfect op- you know, occupation to be able to do that back then. Uh, road players were all over the country, a lot of gambling. And, and uh, so that's where I get my adventures on the road. I've got over 30 videos produced now of me driving in the car, telling these stories. And then I've probably got another 20 or 30 I could do. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of putting together like a, a, a very uh, consistent show where I run a rack every day. And, yeah. you know, my, my saying is the game is the teacher. So I just want to live on video, uh, play a game and just see what it brings up, whether it's stories uh, that I saw this shot or a similar one on the road somewhere or, or uh, the instructional part where I show a certain type shot and then show everybody and tell them as I play what I'm thinking, what I'm doing and how they can do it too. Yeah. Was there a moment that you felt like you arrived. So as you were, you know, you started early by nine years old, 12 years old, you're running racks, you're playing great, but was there like a tournament or an event where, you know, you did really well and you said, Hey, I can make a living out of this. This is something I could do really well. I could be one of the best in the world. Yeah. Well, I was pretty athletic when I was, uh, so tennis was my favorite game. And, and if you notice, I hold my cue a little bit uh, unusual and, and it's really a tennis grip because I played tennis and golf and pool all at the same time when I was young. And uh, I beat some nationally ranked tennis players. And, you know, so you know, I played a lot of tournaments and just was obsessed. Anything that I focus on, I become almost obsessed with it. And I was playing eight hours a day in a town that didn't even have a tennis court. So I'm hitting against the wall. Uh, eventually my uh, mother brought me, bought me a, uh, one of those ball machines. If you've ever seen yeah. uh, shoots them out. And my dad yeah. made me a, uh, a dirt court. And I used to spend like hours and hours and hours out there. And then I would play pool in the, uh, in the winter. Of course, you know, uh, summer never was really a big pool season where I come from. Everybody was out fishing and hunting and doing all that kind of stuff. And then once winter started hitting, everybody went inside and started to play. But I was in Kirksville, Missouri, uh, one night at a, a roller rink that was a bowling alley, had pool tables named Leisure World. And these guys came up to me, these kids, I say guys, uh, but they're, you know, 16, 17 years old, came up and said, hey, there's a guy from Columbia, Missouri here that's wanting to play for money. And I was like, really? You know, because nobody really <laughs> wanted to play me for money. You know, I mean, I did gamble there, but uh I so I went up to the guy and and we agreed to play nine ball uh, for 20 a game. Well, uh, 
no, no, I'm sorry. We, we first played eight ball. I told him I didn't play nine ball. I'd seen it on TV on Wide World of Sports, but I, I'd never played nine ball. But I had played rotation, which you know is the same game. Yeah. Really. Uh, so we played eight ball for 20 a game, and I ended up beating him like three games in a row. Then he wanted to play nine ball, and, and I told him I didn't play, and he thought I was hustling him. Here, I'm, I'm just a 15-year-old kid. So we agreed to play nine ball because it was like rotation. I broke and ran the rack. <laughs> and he quit and was his face was red. He said, I knew you were hustling me. Jeez. And so when he calmed down, we started talking. He says, you know something? If you want to make some money, come to Columbia and I'll show you who to play. And he said, we'll split the money that we make. And I said, well, that's a great idea. So for some reason, I just drove to Columbia without contacting him. I can't remember if I lost his number or whatever it was. And I got there and after a little bit of detective work at the pool room, found out he was in Colorado. Hmm. So now I had no steer man. So this guy that's one of the better players in Columbia uh, said he played me for 20 a game. And uh, so we played, I ended up beating him out like $80. He quit and he said, uh, I can't beat you. I need some weight. And I said, wait, <laughs> I had no idea what he, what he was talking about. He said, yeah, yeah wait, he said, you know what weight is. He says, you don't hustle me, you know? I said, I really don't, what is it? He said, it's a handicap. He said, you play better than me. So you're supposed to give me a handicap. <laughs> and I said, okay, what's a good handicap? And he said, uh, give me the seven, eight, nine. So playing nine ball, I went on the seven ball, the eight ball, and the nine ball, and you just went on the nine. I thought for a minute, I was like, that sounds fair. <laughs> really, it wasn't, because, I mean, he was a really good player. Right. But I held him at bay for like four or five hours, where he was going back and forth and back and forth. I think I was even up on him. And all of a sudden, he started making it on the break and getting combinations, and boom, he beat me like six, seven games in a row. And I think I lost back his $80 and uh, – and quit. And then that was when these guys that had seen a lot, you know, St. Louis, Louis had come in from St. Louis and, you know, they knew about pool players. And that's when they started to tell me, you know, you have a talent that, that you could be a pro if you wanted to. And I was like, wow, you know, I love the game, but I really hadn't thought about making money. Like I said, I sold snow cones. And uh, by the time I was 16, I had 22,000 saved up in the bank. So I had a pretty lucrative little thing going on there. Yeah. So I really didn't need to play pool for money, you know, uh, other than just a way to keep score, a way to put pressure on me. And, that, and, and that's what gambling is. I, I recommend it to everybody, but I don't recommend everybody uh, gamble for any kind of significant amount. I think it's good to play for, I know old men that play for a dollar a game every day and they play like they're playing for the world championships. Yeah. I think you just need a way to keep score that, that puts a little pressure on you so that's when I really started to to understand that I may have a unusual talent and started to go from Columbia uh, like I said on the weekends where I started going to St. Louis and uh, some of these Kansas City and, and started to branch out meet other people that were road players and they took me under their wing so right during that time is when I knew that I may have a destiny and, and you were what age at that time? 15. 15. And, and when I was, it was really 16 when I started going to St. Louis. Okay. I took a uh, tennis player, Carlos Norton from Mazatlan, Mexico. He was their number one player down to play in a tennis tournament. And while he was playing tennis, I was going to play pool. Mm. So we went into this uh, pool room, Afton Billiards, the OK Corral was the name of it. And there was a guy that wanted to gamble with me. 
but he wanted to play for a hundred dollars a set. And I really didn't have that much money. I had like 200, just enough to, for expenses and everything. So I went down to another pool room and hawked one of my, I had a Josh Q that I really didn't use, but it was, had some value. So I hopped it for $300 with the understanding that I could give them 320 if I got it back that night. Took the money back down to uh, Afton, the OK Corral, played the guy, beat him out $600, and then took the cue back, got, gave him the 320 Now I end up, I'm like <laughs> 550 ahead or something, you know? <laughs> and I felt like that was, you know, like I was uh, Bill Gates or something uh, in the pool world at that time. And uh, Went on a shopping spree, and yeah. but, but that you know th that was how I cut my teeth is is gambling at a young age, going to these big cities and just playing whoever uh, you know wanted to play. Yeah. So when you were at the top of your game, you know you played against all the greats, and the game, you know, you catch it on television from time to time on ESPN, and you know what do you think the difference is like, what's the biggest difference between pool today and pool back when you were in your prime? Uh, we were on ESPN, you know, between 96 and 99, I was the liaison between the professional players and ESPN and started an organization, uh, the professional Q sports association. There's a big long story. That's where Earl Strickland won the million dollars and for running 11 racks in a row. And there was controversy and a legal suit. And, and I made a documentary about it that's on my website. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was an incredible. They said uh, a statistician professor from uh, SMU said that the odds were 7.8 million to one. So uh, he did it on the first day. It's never been done before or after. You know, it was just one of those. They said that I was more likely to get struck by lightning twice than have that happen on the first day. So, so I'm I'm pretty uh, familiar with that, that that life can dish out some pretty challenging situations, you know. And and being a gambler, I try to play the odds, but but I've also seen where uh, you know things like that happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, uh, yeah. So, in terms of the game today, uh, with the players that you see out there, and you know, how they treat the game and prepare, especially the Europeans, you know, is it a, it's, I think it's a pretty big difference back when you guys were playing and at the top of your game. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think overall, I mean, there's a lot more great players because I think they have learned from players, uh, uh, you know, uh, of my generation, Mike Siegel's buddy halls, Nick Barner's, uh, Alan Hopkins and Miserac and, and uh, they had the added benefit of, of like YouTube where, where they could see, see when I was growing up, the only thing I could see pool uh, is on wide world of sports, Minnesota Fats and Willie Moscone or, or you know, there was older players playing, but, but yeah. that was few and far between. If I would have had access at the age, you know, that I speak of like 12 when I started playing tournaments, if I could have watched these players uh, I know it would have helped me a lot. I think I would have, I would have had a more seasoned game maybe even earlier, but, but that's the big deal to go back. I didn't really answer your question about then and now, uh, ESPN is the key. Like if you're not on TV these days, you might as well not exist, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's just how people have been programmed. You know, they look, they look everything on the news. Most people think is, is, is true. And, everything that you know and i have my doubts about it because 
you know, on TV, people are reading from scripts and they're, you know, I feel like I'm in a movie a lot of times these days, but I've been in those TV productions where they're telling us how to act and what to do. And like uh, the Moscone Cup, I was the captain and player in 96 and then captain in 2012. And, And they encourage us to be really emotional and and show excitement and everything, which, which is great for TV. Mm-hmm. But if somebody thinks that's how we naturally would be, uh, that's another story, you know. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, uh, pool players are, are pretty quiet and they, they really, you can see the intensity on their face that, that it, it's a high concentration game. So the overall exposure back when I was doing the ESPN events, we were getting uh, an average of a million people per episode. It didn't matter what time it was on, just because the core of that was just ESPN uh, fans that are sports fans that were going to watch whatever was on TV, whether they paid close attention or not. A million people, let's say per week, seeing the game created such a feeding frenzy for the pool rooms because out of those a million, it's not unlikely for a hundred of them or 200 of them go, you know, I'd like to try that pool game and I'd like to get a new pool cue and, 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 you know, visit this place down the street I've always seen, but never went in. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that now. You know, the YouTube uh, is great in, in many ways, but you're really not going to get, you know, Joe, you know, normal guy watching pool on YouTube unless he just purely stumbles on it. And then the, the production value generally isn't like ESPN. So we have an issue there and because we, we don't really have like, like new uh, faces coming into the game on a weekly basis like we did back then. And that if it's ever going to be really big again, it has to be TV oriented with, with the YouTube assisting it, you know. And, uh, you know, you could do something every day on YouTube feeding into a once a week show on uh, ESPN or another major TV. Now it doesn't have to be ESPN, but I think you need the same time, same day type uh, situation where people know it's coming up. They can look forward to it, and uh, you build a uh, a viewing audience that way. Just like all other sports have done. It's just they're so big now. A lot of people don't remember how they got their start. Yeah. Like the golfers used to sleep in their cars and go tournament to tournament, you know, and, yeah. and uh, much like the, the pool hustlers, uh, it's hard to fathom that when you see them playing now and they're winning three or $4 million and last place is 700,000, <laughs> yep. you know, so. You know, I, I, you know. I really think you hit the nail on the head because, you know, how do we get pool to appeal to the masses and not just, you know, like with this podcast, pool players are going to watch it. Right. But average, average people probably won't watch it. And how do we get even, you know, the two best players in the world playing each other, if it's streamed on, on online and not on television, you're right. You know, people aren't going to watch it. And, you know, I started commentating matches recently and I'm really having a lot of fun with it. And I had my wife tune in and watch one of the matches that I commentated. And when I got home, she said, you did an amazing job. I didn't understand a thing you were talking about, but I think it went great. And I think that's part of the problem, right? We're like, oh yeah, he's going to swing two rails and he's going to hit this ball and they don't hit the six ball. She's like, I don't even know what color the six ball is, you know? So maybe spell it out for people who don't watch the game. And I think because we've been kind of, you know, put in this corner where only pool players now watch pool, you know, um, we've, we have to start thinking differently about it, you know? So, 
you know, hopefully that's something that, you know, the folks that are out there doing the big streaming and the big productions, they start thinking about it a little different. Like how do we attract people who don't normally play pool yeah. to pool? Uh, and, you know, that's the million dollar question in it. I have some, uh, I have some pretty good ideas of that uh, because you have to identify what's popular in other sports and model that somehow. And if you, and I've done that when I took and really wrote down the, the strengths and weaknesses of pool and compared it, it was pretty obvious that, that we had a lot of weaknesses, you know, and uh, one of the things that is always popular is banner between the players, mm-hmm. but it needs to be appropriate and it needs to be in a situation where it's consistent because like Minnesota fats, for instance, when he played William Moscone, they had the number one sports show on ABC Wide World of Sports. Hmm. Out of all of them, they were number one. Well, it wasn't because of pool. It was because Minnesota Fats had that gift to gab and told the stories. And Willie Moscone, I think, legitimately hated him. Yeah, <laughs> and so like Willie wasn't a great actor, but you could tell he didn't like Minnesota Fats. And then yeah. that made it funny because he really didn't have to act. He was just, you know, uh, kind of the... the just the, the, the sparring partner that he had both on the pool table and, and off. And so it created a dynamic there. So, so one of the things that I covered, what I did was I identified on paper all of these strengths and weaknesses and then put it into what would be like a balance sheet, you know, like uh, identifying assets and liabilities. I wanted all assets for the game. So I set out to accomplish that. So I went line by line by line by line and using the experience I've had playing other games through the years and different rules, I was able to finally get everything on the positive side. So the whole game was assets. And, and uh, then to seal the game, I needed a, uh, a hook. I needed something that was irresistible to the human mind. And uh, I came up with something to do that. And uh, that is a dare. Like if I, if, 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 if you and I were in a, in a uh, restaurant or pool room or whatever, and we're talking, you know, about something, even if, if it was pretty serious, if two guys over there said, well, I'll dare you to blah, 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 we would stop what we're doing. And so would everybody else to hear what the dare was because we cannot resist a dare. So I created this whole scenario of pool that revolves around a game that we all can play. I say it takes 10 minutes to learn a lifetime to master. And I could write a book about the strategy of this game, even though it looks simple because of the rules, because of how I created the game through the formula, it brings up a situation every single game that showcases the greatest assets of pool as far as the entertainment value. And that is the shot making, the battle between the two players for the first shot, Mm-hmm. And what you call two-way shots or shots that have an offensive and defensive component combined. So like when you were talking about, a now, you know, being the commentator, you're really limited there. He's going to do this. He's going to go two rails on this ball and do that. You don't have much to work with. So when people talk about the commentators not being as good as other sports or something, it, it's not them as much as they don't have much material. Yeah. And what I've done is created something where every single game you start out with a shot that has an offensive and defensive component. You have to make the shot. And then if you don't make it, there's consequences, of course, but uh, not as severe 
as in the game we play now where it's ball in hand. Like no other game are they going to get – that'd be like playing uh, basketball and they decide instead of shooting free throws, you just dunk the ball for your yeah. extra point. It would just take a lot out of it. Yeah. And that ball in hand for us is like a dunk shot. Yeah. It's not – we're never going to miss it. Plus it's going to put us in a situation to run a rack that's pretty easy. And if you're not a big pool fan out there, you're going to start looking at it like, well, this isn't exciting. It's like a bunch of golfers making two foot putts all day. You know, yeah. once a champion player is in line, they're probably going to run the rack and they're going to probably make it look easy. And, and look, making things look easy isn't exciting. So, sure. so that's where I, I took a proactive uh, and uh, I made a 45 minute video about this three years ago. So I've been working on getting this in the right place at the right time with the right people for three years and uh, I've come close a couple times and just some, something happens and it just doesn't quite pan out. But, but I've got the blueprint. I just am waiting to, uh, and I'll tell you what, the time is getting better and better now uh, because so many people are now in their ho homes a lot more yeah. and they're watching YouTube a lot more. And uh, it looks like indoor games like pool in a controlled environment are, you know, I, I, I never thought I'd say it, but healthier <laughs> than other sports yeah you know what i mean who would ever thought pools always always associated with smoking and drinking and and, and other guy type stuff but but we have a controlled environment we just need to fill that controlled environment with something that's exciting and interesting and entertaining to people that don't even play pool and that's what i'm on to right now and and, and look forward to being able to see it come to fruition because uh, I've got a place awesome. now that looks like it's going to be the home base for it. So, you know, we'll see. Well, but, uh, that sounds great. And anything I can do to help, you know, get the word out, I'd love yeah. to hear. Looking back over your incredible playing career and now as an instructor and someone who promotes pool, what are you most proud of over the years? Um, <clears throat> most proud of? I think that I found a way to get out of uh, a town of 629 people <laughs> with a pool cue, <laughs> you know, uh, but there's, there's so much that, that went into that. I think uh, I'm, I don't know if I'd say proud. I, pr I have mixed emotions about being proud, but, but I'm, I'm happy that I kept up my physical well-being. And, uh, you know, for 24 years, I was a martial arts uh, student and teacher and reached second degree black belt in uh, actually eight different styles, including 18 weapons. And all that pain that I went through when everybody else is, is taking it easy is, is really paying off now. So I think one of the things I'm most happy with myself about is even though I went through pool and, and what it takes to become one of the best players, it, it didn't make me unhealthy like it has a lot of players. Buddy Hall told me one time, he said, CJ, if I knew I was going to live this old, I would have taken better care of myself. And boy, I remembered that. And I was like, it's worth putting, give, giving up uh, an hour a day of, of a little discomfort or pain or whatever it ends up being to, to maintain that wellness of, of, of mind, uh, body, and spirit. So, so I, you know, if you're, my answer is not going to be because I won the ESPN World Championships or, or what I've done in, uh, in pool like itself. I'm just happy that I got through it and, and didn't uh, have to give up 
uh, you know, any integrity or anything like that to do it and then still maintain good health. And, and, and I can be a good example, I think, to other players that, uh, especially younger players, that uh, maybe if I was really overweight and, and didn't represent, uh, they, they may not pay attention to me, but I, I think I, uh, I see that that's an advantage that they like that pool players are athletes. Do you have any regrets? Regrets? Um, yeah, I have one regret. I, uh, I got where I was working with, with Hank Haney, who, uh, is in Dallas and he's, he became a friend of mine and we got really close there for a while. And, uh, he was teaching me, he's a golf instructor and then how he really got his, uh, claim to fame was when he started coaching Tiger Woods. So, uh, he was working with Tiger out of the public eye and uh, he was going to fly from Dallas down to Orlando to work with him for the weekend. And I uh, was invited and some things happened and, uh, and it was, you know, uh, I had a girlfriend that, that was not happy about me going down there by myself mm. and one thing to led to another. And I had the pressures of some business, whatever it is. I said, no, Oh. And I didn't get a chance to go down there to work with Tiger, watch him work with Tiger, you know, in person. And then the next time we played golf together, we played like 54 holes. And during that round, uh, I uh, said, Hank, you know, I, I'd really like to go with you to, to watch Tiger hit balls in, in real life. I said, I just want to see the tra trajectory and just see what it's like to be there. And he said, CJ, I can't do it now. He said he is uh, he is guarded way too uh, too much, and he says I can't like do a favor like Hey Tiger, can I have my buddy pool player uh, come over? He says I, I can't. But uh, one thing that kind of redeemed it for me is he wrote a book called The Big Miss about Tiger, and I'd given him a uh, kind of a psychological thing uh, during our uh, relationship that he ended up telling Tiger. And Tiger used it and he put it in the book, which I think is really cool. So my biggest regret also led to one of the biggest accolades of, of being in the book about Tiger Woods. And, and, and just to make it real short, what I told Hank, he asked me, when did you know you were a champion? And I said, Hank, when I knew I was a champion is when I stopped differentiating between hard and easy shots and treated them all just like shots. Because I said, what happens is you'll make those hard shots and inside you'll get, you know, a positive feeling. And then a lot of people jump up the next shot and miss an easy one. Yeah, you're right. And, 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 and it's a common thing among players. I know you've experienced this, mm -hmm. you know, we all have. But if you're going to play at a real championship level, you've got to keep really, you know, having something that goes up is as bad as something that goes down. So it's just as bad to, to rejoice about making a hard shot as it is to get on yourself for not making it. So, uh, you know, that, that's a mixed answer there, but, but my biggest regret uh, ended up being one of the greatest things that, that really happened. So, you know, there when you, you, <laughs> you never know about life. <laughs> you know, when you said that CJ, not to be corny, but I got, I kind of got chills because, you know, you, you, that's so profound. They stopped being hard shots or easy shots and they just became shots. 
yeah. you know, and I think back, you're absolutely right. You know, as yeah, I'm, I'm a decent amateur player and, you know, there's so many times where if you make a hard shot or something you've classified as a hard shot in your mind, then you feel extra pressure. Like I have to get out here because right. I can't waste this shot that I just made. I just made a two rail kick. You know, if I don't get out here, I'm an idiot. And sure enough, you dog it and you don't get out, you know? So you know, judging yourself is a, is a really uh, good thing to get away from because like you said, once you categorize that shot as easy or hard, uh, it, it, it throws off your mental state. I've always said that I try to keep my mind still. Like if I was looking into a, a bucket of water, I want my mind to be such as the water that I can see my clear reflection. And any thoughts are like ripples in that water that blurs my perception. So in my mind, I'm trying to keep it like water to where it's still and and then you you perform at a much higher level in that state they call it like the zone you mm -hmm. know there's several really good books zen and the art of archery is the one that i recommend to everybody even though it's about archery it's a really good book about pool and how to be connected to the game and, and really i say that there reaches a point where i go from playing the game to the game playing through me Mm -hmm. and that's the self-expression that, that really has always uh, developed and maintained the love for the game is a way to express myself, show people on the outside what's going on in the inside. And I think musicians, artists, and I'm sure you can relate in, in everybody can relate, you know. Yeah. The street I, I... keeper should be doing it in a way that expresses himself. You know what I mean? Because you never know. He's liable to be the next millionaire miracle story you know because it's all about uh, attitude in that respect so you did a documentary about earl running 11 racks in a row for a million dollars and for people who aren't familiar with that story would you mind kind of sharing that like just set the stage for what happened and you know really what your documentary focused on yeah well you know we were trying to get exposure and uh and excitement for the game. And again, I was, I was using the same game that uh, I wasn't, uh, like I said before, trying to change the game, just put an excitement element in it. So we came up with this million dollar challenge tour where it's uh, insured by an, a uh, prize identification company, like a hole in one contest would be, or a half shot basketball. Uh, they, they, they insure these and it's a, it's a group, called Lloyd's is where it originates. And you've heard of Lloyd's of London. Mm -hmm. a Lloyd is a, gris, a, a group of risk takers. So the Lloyd's of London are a group of risk takers that really uh, insure things all over the world. So, so when I got the deal in, uh, in Dallas, they had sold it up the chain to the Lloyd's of London. So, uh, so we developed this, if you ran eight racks in a row, you got 50,000. Nine racks in a row, playing nine ball, you got uh, 100,000. And if you ran 10 racks in a row, you got a million dollars, paid 50,000 a year for 20 years. So it was like a lottery. You know, a lot of people think they win, you know, the, all the million dollars. If they want all that money up front, uh, they end up getting about 60%. Yeah. At that time, it was 63%. So a million dollars was 630000 if you took a lump sum. So uh, we had the first event in Dallas, the Dallas Million Dollar Challenge. 
And uh, lo and behold, the first day, the second match that he played, Earl Strickland got up and uh, uh, he ran five racks in a row. And at that point, we started to have to videotape it. So they came and got me and I came in and Earl also had to let Jay Helford rack the balls. who was the tournament director because we were racking our own balls. Yeah. Well, he fought him. He was in such a zone that he, he wouldn't let him rack. So he, uh, he broke and, uh, and ran the sixth rack. And then that was when I was getting the, the, the camera in place because then Jay started racking and uh, he ran four more racks for the 10 and everybody, you know, he jumped, he actually jumped up, came down and broke his cue stick by accident. And he hugged a guy that I know he doesn't particularly like. So it was funny. I mean, uh, Max Everly said he was there and said it was the most excitement he'd ever felt in the game of pool period. And, and it had to be because we had like over 200 people in there and, and, you know, it was, it was all attention on what Earl was doing. So then he got up and ran the 11th rack. And going back, see, if he hadn't ran that 11 rack, 11th rack, he would have ended up getting the 100,000 instead of the million. So he got up and didn't know it, but, but ran the additional one. That's what makes it even more of a miracle. I mean, it's a miracle he ran 10 racks because nobody's ever done it before or after in a professional tournament. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he, he ran that additional rack. So was the, was the deal that he had to run 11 or he had to run 10? No, he had to run 10, but five of them had to be on video. Okay. So, so he would have just had four. Ah, so there had to be proof. And this Visual was proof. this was back before everybody had a cell phone could pull out and just yeah. start recording. You know? Yeah, we had to have a handheld camera that they that I had in the office. So they came in and said, "Earl's on five, or Earl's on." F-. Maybe they said four. Anyway, we wasn't prepared for that, so we we rush around and get the camera <laughs> and everything. And my uh, wife at the time went out there and actually ran the camera, and we have the last. Like the first one doesn't, uh, you know, we got it, it counted, but but really we've got four, the last four racks on our documentary at uh, masteringpocketbayers.com. That's where I got a website that has all my instructional information. But um, anyway, there was some things that happened legally and they tried to get out of it, which they do typically, you know, like the half court basketball shot. If they find out you played a three on three basketball tournament in Indianapolis when you were 18 years old and made $50, you're disqualified because you can't in some of these, uh, you know, propositions, there's some guidelines there that are pretty strict. So a lot of times they'll, they'll stall you, go try to find something like that and bring it back, but they weren't able to do that. So our uh, closing day where we uh, made the deal, there was 17 attorneys on, on their side and we had three. There was so many people, uh, it's early in the morning, there was a huge conference uh, table, you know, surrounded by uh, all these chairs. I went out to get some coffee and came back and I couldn't even get a chair. It was completely packed with attorneys. And, uh, and, and then the, uh, the guy that was the mediator so we ended up settling. They ended up spending more money than, than what they would have. They would have just paid it off. Yeah. But uh, then there's legal fees. But Earl got his money. And he, I've got it in an interview where he says that. He did have some legal fees on his end that he had to take care of. And when he did it, the, the moment he did it, I, I had a meeting uh, 
uh, with some attorneys on the fly and told them that I was going to give him the first 50,000 myself so that then, as they said, we could have a joint lawsuit and both go after him because I was damaged because I gave him the first 50,000 and told him that I would give him the other uh, payment every year, which I wasn't mm. looking forward to at all, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then, uh, but I did give him that 50,000. If anybody says that was a wink, wink deal, they're absolutely wrong. And uh, so I gave him the 50,000, created the damages. Two and a half years later, we made the settlement, got the money, but we lost all of the, uh, you know, the positive elements of him doing that, all the, the, the recognition and publicity that we got because then we had to say something was wrong. And then the rumors went everywhere. Oh, CJ was, it was a con. He was trying to, he didn't really have it. And I was bound by a confidentiality agreement. I couldn't talk. I had a, like a gag order on me. Yeah. So I can't defend myself and listen to all these people talk about what I was, you know, that I, you know, I gave him $50,000 and I have to listen to everybody talk about that. I'm actually uh, a flim flam man on the deal. And, 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 that was kind of hard. That was, that was actually really hard. You know, imagine if he didn't do that, right? Imagine if that went on for a year or two years yeah. or three years, what it could have meant for the game. I mean, oh, I, I can't blame a pool player for trying their best and breaking and running 11 racks. I mean, you got to do that. But if it kind of went as planned, which I think as planned would have been, Hey, somebody might never do this or, yeah. You know, get it might coach. be, <laughs> you know, but don't get there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's interesting. No, it would have, uh, the momentum would have built up. If he would have ran seven and uh, not made one of the break or something and it was over, I can't imagine what would have happened in the second tournament because yeah. everything would have been absolutely ironclad on the second one. A lot of the reason that uh, they were able to, to fight a legal battle is because it was the first tournament and we didn't you know, we didn't suspect that to happen. Again, it's like going outside and expect to get hit by lightning. I mean, it's just, that, that would be silly. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't have, uh, you know, I do accept responsibility. There was one thing that I had to sign that I hadn't signed, but in the state of Texas, if you bind an insurance agreement, it's binding. Like if you get a Lamborghini and call your insurance company and say, I got this Lamborghini, here's the information on it. You're secured there. You don't have to sign anything. In Texas, anyway, it's an oral agreement and it's binding. So that's what ended up uh, winning the lawsuit is we had an oral agreement, so verbal agreement. So CJ, I have this segment of the program where I call it speed pool and I give uh, a name of a player and you have to give me the first word that comes to your mind and you got about five seconds to do it and you can't give compound words or phrases I'm just okay. going to give you a name and you come back with a word. Sound good? Yeah. Keith McCready. Uh, <laughs> earthquake. <laughs> Johnny Archer. Scorpion. Oh, you're going to do all their nicknames. <laughs> oh, I guess so. Yeah. Okay. I see where you're going. Boy, you're catching me off guard here. Okay, go ahead. Earl Strickland. Aggressiveness. Efren Reyes. Uh, I wanted to say magician because <laughs> that's that's uh, um, creativity. Buddy Hall. Not rifleman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, perfectionist. Okay. That's, that's five. You're off the hook. I'll just give you five today. But uh, did you play much you with this? You going to do an ink test on me or something where I have to no, see no, things no. in the clouds and uh, the Rorschach <laughs> test? No. Evaluation. <laughs> in terms of those names that I just named, though, um, did, you, did you have a lot of uh, interaction with those guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Buddy Hall and I used to practice when I was a teenager. And uh, he, he actually did the commentator. Uh, he was one of the commentators with Billy Young Cardone and Dave Bowman when I played uh, Steve Miserak in Reno, which is kind of a, that's when I first came on the scene in the United States. And uh, that was the best selling video of the year on AccuStats is what they told me. So Buddy and I were pretty close and he, he'd shared some things with me that, that I still teach to this day. Hmm. And uh, Johnny Archer, I played him several times uh, for money before I became a tournament player. And uh, so we've, we've had, uh, a lot of uh, competitive battles and plus when i was the moscone cup chap uh captain in 2012 johnny and i really talked a lot back then and strategized on on how to win that cup and it was nine to nine the last day and just anything could have happened so we got about as close as you can get uh who else did you mention there uh uh Efren reyes mccready traveled yeah. with several players that, that I know on the road, uh, Weldon Rogers being one of them. And he was just a phenomenon, uh, especially when he was really young, 16, 17 years old, he was beating everybody in California. And uh, I got to uh, see him the first time when I was 16 at a bar table tournament in Clinton, Iowa, that had just like everybody there, all the champions. But uh, Keith had a shirt on that on the back said, uh, the world has the last two. <laughs> so he was offering everybody in the, in the world, the last two at that time. Wow. So, uh, so we played, we played a gambling match one time and, and uh, I'll just tell you how it went is uh, Keith played perfect. Uh, he broke and ran out and uh, he broke, didn't get out. I ran out. We were playing eight ahead for 3000 and he didn't shoot again. So when he, when it was over, he came up to me and he just shrugged his shoulder. He's real funny, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, shook, you know, fist bumped me and said, uh, I can't complain. I played perfect and lost good shooting. And, and that was about it. So, uh, yeah, I, but I did to... that. I tell people out of self-defense because, because see, if I didn't do that to him, he was very capable of doing that to me. So yeah. I'm not saying that at all, that I was better than Keith. I just was that particular moment. And for the most part, if, if he hadn't had me, so, uh, you know, it's like in a real gunfight, if you're up against somebody that's, that's super good, you got to come with it. And if you don't, he's probably going to shoot you. So, yeah. uh, but, CJ, but I, I love I, Keith, Keith's, uh, you know, color of money, obviously Grady seasons. And he did uh, the wave that I enjoyed back in 1986 after the color of money came out, uh, was, huge because everybody was playing pool and the yuppies were all in the pool spinning their sticks and trying to act like uh, tom cruise and and uh you know really i think pool was probably the most popular that i've seen probably in uh 87 88 all the way up to about 91 is when it really started to taper off and lose the momentum and we didn't have anything on tv to take its place see if if Pool was like some of these other sports and, and had that type of money behind it and, and, and minds. 
they would have had a color of money pool show, I would think, every mm-hmm. week and, and, you know, make it to where there's some playing elements, some trick shots, some banner between the players, some road stories, you know, make it a fun, entertaining uh, uh, show to, to, to keep that momentum going. But nobody did, so it kind of uh, fizzled out. I know Keith pretty well. Uh, it's funny, when I was kind of an up-and-coming player in the D.C. area, we'd play in weekly tournaments together all the time. And, you know, I remember the first time I stepped up to play in a, a professional caliber tournament was Turning Stone. And yeah. at the time, Keith was living probably a half a mile from me in Washington, D.C. And I go all the way up to Turning Stone, I don't know, 128 players in the tournament. Sure enough, I draw Keith McCready first round. Well, Turning Stone's got like the arena set up. Yeah. You know, it's, it's beautiful. And uh, sure enough, I start the match with Keith. There's not too many people watching and I'm winning six to one. I'm playing perfect. You know, I'm playing great. And all of a sudden people find out Keith McCready's losing to some guy they don't know. And now I got 200 people around the table watching. And, and, you know, I think the difference was that's what Keith needed. You know, when he saw those people gathered around, he had his fans there, man, he just started playing perfect. I think I, you know, I had a couple of chances from there, but I ended up losing like 11 to seven or something like that. You know, but he's, you know, he was a, a real momentum player. You know, when he got in gear, he was tough, tough to beat. So, yeah, he broke yeah. my heart. <laughs> yeah, he had a really high gear. And, uh, yeah, I, I got a lot of respect for him and uh, what he's done. It's uh, the, those, those crowds will uh, will get you nervous. Like like playing pool, I kind of got into it to where it, it I never was really that nervous, even playing uh on ESPN, even though the live matches were uh, a lot uh, more pressure than the tape matches. Like I played the Battle of the Sexes. When I won the world championships in uh, 96 on ESPN, Vivian Vivarreal won the women's world championships at the same time. And they promoted a big Battle of the Sexes. So I played Vivian, 60,000 for first, 40,000 for second. So it was pretty significant money. I mean, especially looking at what they're playing for now, this was, uh, you know, 24 years ago. So uh, I was playing incredibly good and, and, and ended up winning that match, but they told me 2.8 million people were watching. And uh, I just was so confident. And, and the way that I play when I really click in is kind of pressure proof too. I play a different, type of game than than a lot of other people like uh, that's why I look forward to 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 really showing people what I'm doing because I've been doing it lately in person with lessons and uh, I've given a lot of lessons the last three years because I just you know I'm the type that I want to be the best at it and I really just set out to be the best instructor in the world and that doesn't mean I get a trophy for it that just means inside that I feel that I am and then I wanted to get to that point and then share it uh worldwide because you know it's kind of rehearsing it at the same time and learning it so that i can explain it better but i'm, I'm pretty close to that right now and um, like i tell people and and after i show them even a three-hour lesson i'm going to show people how it all connects together you give them baselines and 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 refer referential indexes for uh, they're the left side of the body where the left foot goes, the right side of the body where the right foot goes, how the body position controls where the hand positions naturally go, how to preset your body in a position that you can be a pool playing machine. 
because my uh, position is we were not made to play pool. We were not made to play golf. We were not made to play tennis. But as far as pool, there is a position that I can put my body in that makes it look like it, like my body was made to play pool. So what I do is teach people how to get in that position first. That's a lot easier said than done because what most people are programmed to do is they see the shot, they go up to the shot, they position their body accordingly, and they try to make that shot however they aim, however they align, however they do it. That's their mindset. That's not what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. It's almost the opposite of that. The first thing I do is put my body in the pool playing machine position. Then I'll move over and get my eyes in position. It's like building a building. You want to build the foundation before the top floor. Well, the feet are the foundation and the head and eyes are the top floor. So most people get their top floor in position first and then get their feet. I'm getting my feet and body in position where all I've got to do is make a step, inst instigate the downward motion with my hips, and I can go down on the ball the same time, day in, day out, and so can anybody else, unless there's, you know, some, you know, there's some exceptions to that. And I do know some exceptions on, on how to tweak that a little bit. But for the most part, you put yourself in the pool playing machine and then you go to the table and, uh, you know, execute the shot and, the, and, and everything connects as one. I don't look at it like I'm hitting one sphere into another sphere to hit this pocket, you know, target over here. That's separate. What I do is I look at the balls like they're two dimensional where I can see sections of them where my mind can. And then I align to every shot the same, either center to center or center to edge. And then after that, I can show you a variety of ways where you can aim because that's a personal thing. As a matter of fact, most champion players don't say they use an aiming system. They say it's instinct. Well, let me instinct is a system. You know, if you're going to do something consistently, they're just not aware of it. So it's subconscious. And what I've done is uh, put a lot of time and effort into figuring out when I got in that zone, when I was playing my absolute best, what was I doing exactly? Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that, it's hard to go back and forth because when you're in the teaching mode, it's hard to play at a high level. And when you're playing at a high level, if you start teaching, it's liable to mess you up because you become conscious of subconscious activities that you were doing before. And, and, and it's, it messes you up. Like you're walking down the steps and somebody says, are you breathing in or out on your right foot? Boom. I mean, it, you, if you really think about it, you're, you're not going to be able to walk down those steps very well. Yeah. I never thought and, and, about it that way. That's a great point yeah, because so, like, if you take the time to stop and think about like you're playing great, you're in dead punch. Well, most time when you're doing that, you're not, you know, you're not really thinking a lot, you know, you're just in the zone, like we talked about before. And it's almost like from a macro level, if you're trying to be the best instructor, you can be while you're trying to be the best player you can be. Well, that's probably not going to work because you're going to start like critiquing yourself and you're not going to be in the zone. I like that. Well, it, it works when you, when they finally come together, because, uh, I mean, I've had to, you know, uh, I've had to really figure out what I'm doing. So now as a test, when I'm giving lessons and stuff, I, I set up really hard shots and put pressure on myself. Like I froze last night, I was giving a lesson. I froze uh, the cue ball on the end rail at the center diamond. I put the other one on the, on the foot spot. And then I told him about this game called target pool. 
that Kim Davenport had invented. Have you ever heard of that? I have. Yeah. Yeah. So there was, there was, uh, there was uh, beginner intermediate advanced shots and then they put it, put down like the equivalent to like a dartboard, except it was square. And you try to get to the center, which was like, you know, the most points, 20 points, 50 points, whatever it was. And as you came out, you got less points. If you didn't hit the board, you didn't get any points. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't make the shot, you didn't get any points. So that was a totally skill game. And uh, so I set that shot up for this guy and told him where the target would be and, and made the shot without warming up, really, and, and came just like three inches from where I pointed that the cue ball was going to go. And I told him, you know, as far as playing the game of pool, I've never claimed to like be the best. I've had moments where, where I think I could, but that doesn't mean that I did everything better than somebody like Efren Reyes. Like Efren Reyes does everything really good. And, uh, and, and I, had, I had a few things that I didn't think would ever be as good as Efren. But he did play in those target pool tournaments. We had two of them. One was in Las Vegas, $3,500 for first, no entry fee. So all the players that were there, you know, and there was an all-star lineup, got into this tournament, and I ended up winning it. So then he had a tournament in uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, another big tournament with all the pros there. He had another target pool tournament with $2,500 first place. Everybody gets in it, no entry fee. And I won that one too. Did you really? So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't bragging or anything. I'm just saying that the systems that I teach and, 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 and what I'm showing is why I was able to do that because some of the mechanical stuff that I do, those other players are doing it naturally. So when you get them in a game situation like that, that isn't one like a regular game of pool, they're a little out of their element. So setting up ideally to make all these hard shots and get the cue ball where they want it, I think that was a big advantage for me because I had really done a lot of work even at that time to understand why I was getting the results so that I could do it uh, at a moment's notice or before I was even warmed up. So, uh, yeah. So I was going to ask you about this a little bit later, but since you brought up your uh, training, your clinics, that kind of stuff, I wanted to give you an opportunity now to let the audience know how they can get in touch with you to schedule a seminar, a clinic, you know, um, lessons, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Facebook's good. If, if you're not a friend of mine on Facebook, sometimes I don't get the messages go into like a different file and, and I'm not notified of it. So sometimes that happens where I'll have three or four and I didn't get back to him because I, uh, I didn't know it was there, the message, but uh, CJ Wiley at CJ Wiley.com is, uh, or excuse me, CJ Wiley at uh, gmail.com. I guess it is. <laughs> God, I haven't emailed myself in a while. Uh, CJ Wiley at CJ Wiley.com. Okay. That's the Gmail, right? It doesn't have to have a Gmail on it, does it? You know, I don't know, but what we'll do afterwards is we'll get the email correct and I'll put it up on the screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. way people. <laughs> well, I'm used to writing it. But anyway, CJ Wiley at cjwiley.com and uh, on Facebook. I've got I've got a couple other uh, websites. Uh, MasteringPocketBilliards.com is the one that goes to all of my instructional videos right now. Uh, it... Uh, is just a more of a private membership thing. I have, I have about 12 hours of different types of videos on there right now. 
including some of my road stories. I don't have all of them on there, but uh, at some point I'll, I'll probably download all of those road stories, but it's more instructional. And it has the uh, documentary with Earl Strickland where he tells how he trained to run those 10 racks or 11 racks in a row for the million dollars. He trained to do that. He came there to do that. He told his wife on the way over, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run those 10 racks for a million dollars. And he did it. So uh, in his own words, and, and she verified it, he was going on a mission to accomplish that and did it. That's pretty extraordinary, if you ask me. Yeah, I'll say. Shifting back to your career, what's your highest high and your lowest low throughout your pool career? Uh, I mean, I think the highest high was, was winning that uh, ESPN World Open Championship and then the Battle of the Sexes. I mean, at that point right there, I don't think it could have got much better for uh, accomplishment and, and not something that I did in a, uh, in a back room pool hall, you know, as far as gambling, but something that everybody could see. And I got to the finals of that ESPN tournament three years in a row. So I won it in 96. I was runner up in 97. I was runner up in 98. So they told me I had over 600 international hours of uh, TV time worldwide. So I couldn't walk through an airport without, you know, several people. Uh, knowing who I am. And I don't think that's the case anymore just because of the lack of the, of the ESPN. But uh, that was the highest high. Uh, I think the, the lowest low was I was, uh, I was in Hutchinson, Kansas. And uh, before the tournament, I played this guy, Jeremiah Johnson. And I was impressed how good he played. I was only like 19 years old. And he played really well. And, and we went back because I was playing really well. And I couldn't beat him. So uh, I ended up at that tournament getting into match after match after match and playing in the tournaments. And I stayed up for four straight days with uh, going back to the hotel to take a shower once in a while. But I never got in my bed. So it got down to where I ended up getting uh, – I think I got fifth in the tournament. But uh, I started betting on Jeremiah. And Jeremiah ended up winning the tournament. So anyway, I stayed up all those days and I, I was pushing myself way too hard back then. And my weight was down. I was like 145 pounds or something. And uh, I went down to Dallas. And when I got there, I had no money. I had just a little bit of gas in my car and I made it to this pool room, 24 hour pool room called Rusty's on Northwest Highway in Dallas. And I went in there and I'm sitting at the bar and I got no money. I got no gas. I got no hope. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, yeah. I don't know anybody. I'm too shy and embarrassed to ask somebody for money. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, what in the world <laughs> have I got myself into? And uh, just uh, five or 10 minutes later, I heard the door open. I turned around and it was Jeremiah Johnson and his friend Larry that had just coincidentally come down there and decided to go in that pool room. And they ended up, uh, uh, I mean, I looked at them, I thought I'd seen it, uh, an angel or something. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh my God, I got, there's hope, I can at least eat. Jeez. So uh, they backed me for $500, I beat this guy. And then he stalled me around and played another one and I lost it back. So now I'm back to not having anything. The next day we go to Paris, Texas, which is northeast of Dallas, about an hour and a half or so. And uh, I ended up getting in a game with uh, a bar owner and beat him out of like uh, almost 7,000. 
but he didn't have any money. It was all on a check. It was all what we call on the wire. Yeah. And uh, people said he was good for it. And we were no, you know, you got to take a chance, you know, even if uh, they don't pay. So he gives us the check. And of course, in my state of mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sure this is going to be good. We're going to go down. They're going to, he's going to stop payment on it, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so we, uh, we went down to the bank. They let me go in. I went in there. I don't even think they asked me for ID back then. I think they, they saw that check and just cashed it like it was gold. Really? Uh, and I got that money and went out. I mean, it was like a big life-changing experience. And then that led to, a, uh, we ended up driving back to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Larry and I, Jeremiah flew back. We won another 3,800 going back. And then I met a group of people out there that became my lifelong friends. And uh, I mean, we went through, it, it's led to all kinds of different things in my life, starting from that hopeless situation of having no money, no gas, no nothing, sitting in that pool, that pool room in, in Dallas, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so you never know, you know, what, what life will bring. I just, uh, CJ, let's say the internet wasn't around now. Who would you pick for maybe like three or four players to go on the road with and get the cash? <laughs> uh, I think Corey Duell would be, uh, one, and um, probably Rob Saez, he plays really good and uh, is uh, a good gambler. Uh, you know, if he was playing, he's not playing a lot. Shannon Dalton, he's another one that uh, is just really good on the road and gambling and plays a lot of games at a high level. I know he's not playing much anymore. But, uh, you know, I mean, those, those, those are a few that I, that I would choose. Like you said, it, with modern technology, now they take a picture of you and put you on a forum or something, and, and uh, it's impossible to, uh, to hide like I used to be able to. I was playing in North Carolina one time, and I'm playing this guy, and uh, he says, I ran out the rack, and he's like, you're that CJ, aren't you? And I was like, CJ, what's that? You know, and, uh, so anyway, it was kind of uncomfortable. I went over to my partners. I was going by him. He goes, deny, deny, deny. <laughs> so for the rest of the match, he kept saying, you're that CJ. And I kept saying, I don't know who you're talking about. And my name's Mike. And, but, you know, in this day and age, he would show me my picture and say, no, you are that CJ Wiley uh, character. Omaha John one time was down in Tupelo, Mississippi, and three guys were arguing about who the best young player in the country was. And the first one said, uh, I think it's a, a kid named Mike from Indiana. He came through my town and he gave me the seven ball and beat me. And this other guy's like, no, no, I think it's this kid from Tennessee named Butch. He came through my town and gave me the handicap of the six ball, which is more, and beat me. And the other guys, no, no, there's this kid, CJ, in Missouri, and he's the best one. He came through my town, gave me the five ball and beat me. At that time, Omaha John had to get up from the table and go to the bathroom because he started laughing because I'd used all three of those names when I was with him. <laughs> they, knew they were all arguing over who the best player and the young player was in the country, and they were all me. So I told John, I said, well, I guess I won. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. 
That's you know, we could do that back in those days, but but not now. Yeah, you're right. Now it's impossible with the internet. And not only that, even, you know, five, six years ago out in the state of Arizona, the entire state, every player in the state was rated. They had a handicap. They had their own system out here. And now they, they switched over to the Fargo rate, you know, but every single player, you couldn't sneak up on anybody. Everybody knew who you were. And if they didn't know who you were, you had to kick up your driver's license and they'd find out who you were and they'd assign a rating to you before you could play anything you know they've got it organized now the knocking we used to call it you got knocked now it's like uh, an organized organized knocking system that they have with the fargo rating yeah who else would be a great person for me to interview like somebody that if i interviewed them on this show you might even tune in and kind of check it out uh of the top players now? Yeah. Uh, hmm. Maybe a character. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think Rob Saez is, uh, is pretty funny and uh, a good personality. Uh, I levitate more towards the uh, gamblers than the, than the tournament players as far as being entertaining and having the stories. Of course, Earl Strickland is uh, is a classic. He and I get along, you know, pretty well, uh, especially away from the pool table. We play a lot of golf and tennis together and stuff like that. So he's he's certainly an interesting character. And he, you know, he used to go on the road and gamble like I did. Uh, but when he quit, he, he never looked back. I don't think he's done much gambling in the past 20 years. Maybe you could help me get in touch with him. I'd love to, you know, I've had a lot of people request him and, uh, you know, he's rather elusive. He's tough to, to find. I found you online and you were so easy to work with. So, uh, you know, if you could help me get in touch with him, I'd love that. I think people would really appreciate that. Yeah. I played him a, a challenge match last year. I haven't talked to him since then, so I don't know where he's at. So is there any, Anything more you want to accomplish in the game of pool? Any any other goals? Well, I mean, I'd like to bring it into the public eye. Like I said earlier, I, I created a game that brings out all the best aspects of pool. And uh, really, through an honest evaluation of the game, I would say that we're only showing about 20% of its uh, potential. And, and like I said, what people like to see is the, is the shot making, the banner between the two players, the, uh, the battle for the first shot, and then those shots that, that have uh, their two-way shots, have offensive and defensive components. Because that's where the real knowledge is in pool, is shooting a shot that might be, uh, the odds might be against you to make it, but you have a pretty good odds of, of missing it on a certain side of the pocket and not leaving your opponent a shot. So that's where it really gets interesting and the commentators have something to talk about. And uh, if I brought that game into the public eye and did it right, uh, it would really make an impact because it'd go from having 20% of its uh, potential up to probably 90%. And we could you know, push it towards that 100% just through uh, you know, how well the players were bantering among each other. And, and you know, you, you, just, you just have to look at the game uh, also as, as the show qualities. 
and the entertainment qualities, the excitement qualities, and being able to put it on a number. Like if I'm watching, if I'm channel surfing and I go to a football game, even if I'm not a big fan, if it's fourth down and there's seven seconds left and, and uh, you know, they, they, they put the situation on a number, I'm going to understand what that number is. And so is everybody else that has any, you know, relationship to, to football. And, uh, and I'm going to know that I want to watch that play because it's exciting. And we can't do that in pool right now. You can't really put it on a number. And uh, I mean, you can put the score down, but what I'm talking about is going into the particular shot and what is the number of that shot and what does it mean if they make it or don't make it. And, and uh, if that isn't done, I don't really see much future in just playing the same games over and over. They say that you can't solve the problems that you create with the same thinking that you use to create it. So most people have just been thinking the same way and doing the same type of stuff for years and years and years, and, and it hasn't changed. So they have to change their thinking and, and certainly make some uh, positive alterations to the game like I did to bring out those great aspects and, and make it exciting for people that don't normally watch pool. CJ, you've given me so much of your time today and so much, I, I think, really good advice in this episode, as well as just some great stories and finding out more about you and getting to know you. And I really appreciate that. I wanted to know if you had any final words for the, the players out there, the fans, you know, uh, people who might be watching, anything you want to kind of leave them with? Well, uh, the game is the teacher. I mean, I, I uh, like to, uh, you know, connect things through like bridges, if you will, or through analogies. And, and, and the game of pool, if you look at it like that, teaches a lot more than just making those little balls and those big, big pockets. <laughs> it shows you, you know, uh, a lot about yourself and, uh, you know, controlling emotions and risk reward scenarios and, uh, and, and dealing with pressure, because no matter what we do in life, some of the most rewarding things that can happen involve some level of pressure. And generally, the more pressure, the more confidence that you will get out of the situation. Because they say confidence is a real thing. Uh, you can develop units of confidence, but it's uh, mirrored by your ability to show courage. So if you show courage and get up there and play somebody you don't think you can beat or haven't been able to in the past, but you just make yourself get up there, you know, some really good things might happen and, 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 and some bad things might happen. But I'll tell you one thing for sure is if you get through it and you hold your composure and you look at it as a learning experience, you will get a unit of uh, confidence from that courage that you showed. And I think across the board, that's what we all should be seeking to do is, is push ourselves that next level, show the courage to do it. And the reward will always be a unit of confidence. Well, CJ, that's some great advice to close with. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best in the future. And uh, maybe we can come back for another episode, maybe a year down the road or so and see how yeah. you're progressing with your idea. Sure, Joe. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh -huh.